tonight uh, we need to begin, uh, and we begin with uh, why theology matters, why, why do this uh, course, and we uh, spoke about it a little bit last uh, Wednesday evening as a kind of introduction, and I want us to think about that a little more formally um, tonight. Uh, I've I've given you some quotations here, but the one I want to draw attention to uh, is the one by uh, John Calvin uh, from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, This is uh, John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, writes the Institutes of the Christian Religion in 1536. He was 27 years old. Uh, He hadn't even had a call uh, to a church at that point. Actually, he, he wasn't even sure that's what God wanted him to do. Um, but he writes one of the most important texts in theology uh, that's ever been uh, written, uh, which began with this sentence. Now, the, the book grew uh, like Topsy. It, it sort of grew and grew. And uh, for the next 25 years, uh, he kept adding to this volume so that the final edition was uh, four times um, the size of the first edition. Uh, but it began with this uh, quotation, and it, it, it really didn't change much uh, from edition to edition. Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, uh, true and sound wisdom, consists uh, principally in this, in knowing God and in knowing ourselves. Knowing God and uh, knowing ourselves. And then he goes on to add, Uh, While joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to uh, discern. So Calvin, uh, Calvin, I think borrowing maybe from the ancient Greeks a little here, know thyself, that motto. um, The way we know ourselves is to actually know God. And in knowing God, we also come to know a little bit about ourselves because we are created in the image of God. So there are God-like qualities that are actually reflected in the creation of man after the image of God. Now, uh, let's, uh, let's begin with some of the disciplines of theology. And uh, I, I'm not going to spend too much time here, but just to give you a little feel uh, for the various uh, branches uh, of theology, some, some of which you will immediately recognize. Uh, we begin with exegesis, or sometimes called exegetical theology. That, that's the kind of theology that, that engages um, verses of Scripture, looks at, looks at clauses and nouns and verbs, and asks questions about the grammar and the syntax, uh, and actually focuses on the sort of microcosm of the Bible in order to do um, proper exegetical theology you, you really need, or at least you need somebody to, need, to, to know uh, the original languages, uh, Greek and Hebrew, and uh, possibly a little bit of Aramaic at the end of uh, the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, but uh, if you pick up a commentary, for example, and uh, many of you use uh, a commentary uh, in your Bible classes uh, that, that, you, that you attend, uh, those uh, commentaries, somebody in that commentary has, has gone into the, the depths of the original language uh, and asked questions as to what a particular text uh, may mean. So you have exegesis or exegetical theology. Uh, then secondly, biblical theology. And um, 
This, this doesn't mean what you might think it means. Um, sometimes we ask uh, questions, you know, what does John have to say about something? Or what does Paul have to say about something? Or what does Peter have to say about something? Uh, what are the particular emphases, for example, of the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah, right? In contrast to Ezekiel and and the answer to that would be that Isaiah has, has a considerable emphasis on the holiness of God. He mentions the word holy something like a hundred times in the course of his uh, prophecy. He, he is affected by the vision that he himself saw and records in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy. So Isaiah has a peculiar emphasis on the holiness of God. Emphasizing individual authors or end, uh, emphasizing individual books or, or even emphasizing particular periods in redemptive history. Um, what was God teaching in the time of the Exodus? What was God teaching at the time of the exile or the return from exile? Some of us are, are uh, listening to an exposition of Ezra on Sunday evenings, and, and we've, gone, we've gone almost to the end of the Old Testament era to the time when they were coming back from the exile. And what are the particular emphases of that period? Uh, that's what we would call biblical uh, theology. Um, historical theology, you know, what, uh, what have people said um, at various stages in history? What were the questions they asked? Uh, what were the conclusions they drew? Uh, for example, we've just uh, mentioned uh, Calvin in the 16th century, and uh, it would be appropriate uh, in theology to, to look at 16th century theology, the, the peculiar emphasis, or for us who are Presbyterians, uh, in the room, uh, 17th century, the time of the Westminster Confession, 1645, 17th century, what are the peculiar emphases of the 17th century? And one of the peculiar emphases of the 17th century would be Calvinism, that is an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and on uh, doctrines like election and predestination and so on. Um, so historical theology. Uh, then uh, systematic theology, which is in part what this course is principally about, because we're going to be asking not the sort of little questions, what does Paul say or John say or, or various periods of redemptive history or even, even what people have taught down through history. Um, we're going to be asking the big picture question, what does the whole Bible have to say? What, what does the whole Bible have to say about atonement, about forgiveness? about calling, about gifting. And in order to answer that question, you have to know a lot of things. Right? In order to answer the big picture, you need to actually know the little pictures. Actually, you need to know all the little pictures and how they relate together in order to address the big question uh, of uh, systematic theology. Now, systematic theology also engages um, some of the questions, some of the some of the philosophical questions, uh, for example, if you're living in 2012, you know, you can't, you can't engage in anything, theology or anything else, without engaging in postmodernity. Postmodernity questions the validity of truth. 
There are no such things, there, there is no such thing as a truth statement. Truth is relative. What's true for you may not be true for me. Well, systematic theology has to engage that. How do we know that something is true? When we, when we make statements and, and, and claim truthfulness about these statements, how do we, how do we verify the truthfulness of those uh, statements? Then there are other branches, and uh, we'll, we'll pass uh, over some of them. Apologetics, for example, uh, how to commend the faith uh, against all kinds of uh, philosophical uh, opposition and, and how, to, how to argue the, the veracity of the faith. Um, ethics, it's a very important uh, discipline in theology. Um, what are the implications of this doctrine or that doc- doctrine uh, for behavior? Uh, how should I respond? How should I behave? How then should we live? Uh, to quote a title of uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, a, a very important book that he wrote, uh, How Then Shall We uh, Live? Missions. Um, what is the implication of theology for missions? You know, uh, truth, ha- truth, truth is true no matter where it is, but it faces particular uh, types of opposition and it has to be sensitive to particular cultural emphases uh, in various parts of the world. So the, the way we do systematic theology, the way we talk about theology has to, has to be sensitive to um, the call of the gospel to go into all the world and engage all kinds of uh, people groups and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so studies like sociology and uh, anthropology uh, will affect uh, the way uh, we think about uh, missions. And anyone training to be a missionary, for example, and goes off to mission school uh, and, and gets uh, three, six-month years long uh, ac- uh, be- becoming acclimated to uh, the particular context, uh, the Spanish context or the Chinese context or the Russian context or the European context, uh, and some of the things that they'll be studying uh, will be in the area of uh, sociology and anthropology. Um, spiritual theology. Um, what does theology have to say about devotion? About um, um, the way we the way we worship? Um, what are what are the particular uh, emphases of our worship? Uh, prayer, uh, praise, singing, um, personal prayer, corporate prayer. Uh, we're going to end these meetings on Wednesday, as we always end these meetings, uh, whether we're few or many, uh, we, we end in a time of prayer. Why have corporate prayer? Uh, because theology isn't true theology until it glorifies God at the throne in prayer. Uh, and that's going to be a very important emphasis. So uh, liturgy. Um, don't want to say too much about that, but uh, you know our theology affects the way we uh, worship publicly uh, on the Lord's Day. Well, why do we begin with a call to worship? Why do we have a confession of sin uh, in our in our worship? Why do we say the Apostles' uh, Creed in uh, worship? 
why do we sing the materials that we sing and uh, the, the kind of things that we do in public uh, worship. Uh, liturgical theology is also a branch of theology. And then finally, practical uh, theology. Uh, how should we understand and further God's work in our particular roles and uh, uh, some of you are lawyers and doctors and, and you've had enough criticism uh, in the last uh, few days, so I'll bypass you. Um, uh, but uh, some, of you, some of you are housewives, some of you are mothers rearing children, uh, some of you are homeschoolers, some of you are, 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 in, are engaged in uh, various kinds of activities. And uh, you want to know, what is, what is this truth? How does this theology impact what I do uh, from day uh, to day. Uh, so the various branches of, uh, of theology, and uh, in another part of my life, uh, I spend most of my time in number four, uh, dealing, dealing with uh, systematic theology, but in order, as you can see, in order to do systematic theology, you actually need to be aware of a, a lot of other disciplines too. Uh, secondly, the uses uh, of theology, the uses of theology. Uh, look at that wonderful quotation uh, from William Perkins. William Perkins uh, lived uh, roughly, and, and, and the historian can correct the exact dates here, but roughly from about uh, 1550 uh, to 1609. I'm making those dates up because I can't quite remember. But he, he, he spans... He lived for about 55, uh, 60 years, and he, and he just spanned over 1600, and I, I think he died before 1610, so I'm going to say 1609. Uh, if you would if have been a, a minister, say, a, a gospel minister in the late 1500s in England, uh, there were only two places that you'd go to study to be that minister, um, and that would be either Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and Oxford was a den of Arminianism at that period in its history, and Cambridge was the place to go if you wanted to hear uh, theology a la John Calvin. Uh, because William Perkins had, had drunk from the well of John Calvin, and he was uh, a fire-breathing Calvinist. Uh, and um, he, uh, he defines theology. Look at the, the text, uh, uses of theology. Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Uh, I've told some of you before, um, sometimes when I'm on an aeroplane, you know, and uh, you, you get about uh, 25 seconds before the headphones go on, uh, and you say to them, uh, you know, uh, are you going home? Uh, Ease in gently, you know, what do you do? Uh, and uh, if, if the headphones haven't gone on, they might reply and say, you know, what do you do? And if I say I teach systematic theology, that's, uh, that's, that's a shutdown. If I say I'm a Presbyterian minister, that gives them the heebie-jeebies. Um, so I, I usually quote this line. I say I teach the science of living blessedly forever. Um, and uh, it works almost every time because it sounds kind of new age-ish and... Uh, uh, so they're, they're sort of curious, and what, what does that mean? And, uh, but that's how William Perkins, he was, uh, he was a, um, a theologian, uh, he was a teacher of theology at uh, Cambridge University, um, that's how he defined theology, the science of living blessedly forever. You know, that's what uh, thrills me about uh, a packed room like this, and, and I need to make it absolutely clear there are dire penalties for dropout from this course. <laughs> um, 
But what thrills me is the capacity to which all of us are just going to be incredibly blessed. Because if we, if we really get it, we are going to be so blessed because true theology provides the bedrock to enable us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Actually, that's what the Westminster Divine said in the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man to glorify God and uh, enjoy him forever? And I think they were building on the kinds of things that William Perkins and others had been saying about what theology actually is. It's to enable you to live the blessed life. How do you live the blessed life? Everyone in the world is looking for the blessed life. And what is it? It's, it's to have a house at the beach. It's to have enough money that you can retire early and play golf or, you know, take wonderful vacations or whatever, whatever answer. And, and those are not wrong in themselves. Don't misunderstand me. But, but they're not ends in themselves either. They're wonderful if you can get them, and I wouldn't say no to any of them. Um, but, but they don't give you the blessed life. If you think that's all you need to get the blessed life, you are sadly mistaken. But theology, true theology, true theology gives you, gives you such, such a blessing. Now, look at the sick men. And, and I, have to, uh, I have to claim these are not mine. Uh, these are Eve Huffman's. <laughs> I came in this morning and I said, I want four stick men. Told her what I wanted, and in about an hour or so, uh, she came back with these uh, stickmen. And I wanted, I wanted one, the first one, to be um, a person who's all legs. Um, I tried to stretch it a little bit, and, and really, if you want to stretch it even more, that's fine. I, I want this person to be all legs and, and nothing else. It's all about practice. You, you, you know this, sir. You, you know this person, this Christian. Um, I just want to be practical. I can't, I can't be, it's none of you, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, I don't want theology, can't be bothered with theology, I can't be bothered reading books, I can't be bothered studying, all I want is practice. Tell me what to do. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the person who wants the book that says 10 ways to make you happy. Uh, and that, rather than Louis Burkhoff's uh, systematic theology, which, by the way, is a wonderful, wonderful text, but perhaps a little heavy uh, for, for some of us. Uh, I've given you a little quotation there from uh, Fred uh, Zaspel, a contemporary OCC, published this year, 2012, uh, on Warfield. You can read that at your leisure. Uh, but the first... Um, the first distorted model is uh, the Christian who's all legs and nothing else. Uh, the second one is all heart. All heart and no head and no, no, uh, no uh, legs, I think that probably should have been. Uh, you know, it's, it's the Christian who says, I love Jesus and that's enough. And, um, you know, you, you, uh, you, you have to respect somebody who loves Jesus for sure. Um, but it's unhealthy. Cardiologists here, doctors here, this is not healthy. Uh, you, you, need, uh, you need a body to be able to support this kind of heart. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the Christian who's all about emotion. It's all about feeling. You know, it's, it's, it's how they feel. And they can be up one day and down the next because they have no structure. They have no theology. Uh, they're, they're driven by mood swings. You know, it's like, uh, it's like the pubescent teenager, Christian. 
um, driven by mood swings. The goal uh, of this Christian is devotion only. And uh, perhaps they talk a lot about community and fellowship and uh, relationship, um, but they regard study, the study of theology, with uh, some suspicion. Uh, Warning here from Psalm 32. Uh, Be not like the horse or mule without understanding. Uh, The text, if you remember, Psalm 32 goes on to say that needs to be driven by bit and bridle. Um, Use your understanding. You have a mind. Use it. Um, The third distortion is all head and not much else. Now, perhaps there are some of that category here. Perhaps. I just want to be smarter than everybody else. You know, I want to be able to win the argument over the water cooler about about, um, creation or election, Uh, or um, what happens to those who never hear the gospel. I'm just interested in winning the argument. All head, bookish, egghead. There's a warning here from Paul. Knowledge puffs up. I think Paul was peculiarly sensitive to that. You know, Paul was bookish. Paul had a phenomenal education. He was educated in the best school, uh, rabbinical school of his day. Gamaliel was considered to be one of the best teachers of the day. Uh, Paul can go up against every theologian that has ever been. uh, And they're still trying to fathom what Paul actually meant. Uh, And I think Paul is particularly sensitive to the fact that this kind of thing has a peculiar temptation. It can puff you up. It can make you proud. And unless you have a balance of head, heart, and legs in terms of practice, affection, mind, and the whole being, the whole of life um, given Uh, for the gospel, there's always going to be a problem. So um, the correct model, uh, balancing here head and heart, balancing uh, mind and uh, affections. Uh, Look at the quotation uh, from Jim Packer. Theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. That's what theology is for. It's for the praise of God and for the practice um, of godliness. Now, uh, number three, uh, biblical examples uh, of theology at work. Uh, And I've got some texts here um, that demonstrate that the Bible itself, even though it's not a book on systematic theology, it doesn't read like Hodge's systematic theology or Burkhoff's systematic theology, or it doesn't even read like uh, Jim Packer's Knowing God uh, or Sinclair Ferguson, whoever he may be, um, uh, The Christian Life. Um, it, the Bible doesn't read like that. Those, those, those books have systematized, they brought together what the whole Bible has to say about individual um, topics. But the Bible itself is conscious of doing that too. Uh, look, at, uh, look at a couple of them, 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers, uh, do not be children in your thinking. 
be infants in evil, but in thinking be mature. You know, Paul is addressing a church in Corinth that was driven by uh, a lot of emotional uh, thought, uh, driven by gifts of the Spirit, uh, driven by uh, tongues and prophecy and, and so on. Uh, and they were behaving, as, as Paul says on many an occasion when he writes to the Corinthians, they, they often behaved like children. And one of, the thing that, one of the things that children are actually not very good at doing, and that is thinking. Um, you need to stop and think Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing. Uh, look, at the, look at the text from Romans 6:17. Uh, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to what? The standard of teaching to which you were committed. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Paul says that they have been delivered to what? You might, you might think that Paul would say, you've been delivered to Jesus, or you've been delivered to the gospel. And both of those would be true, but actually what he says is, you've been delivered to the standard of teaching. There's a body of teaching. There's a body of truth to which you have been delivered. You have an entirely new worldview, an, an entirely new way of thinking as a believer. Now, consider the following, and um, I have uh, five, five of them. Uh, let's begin with the first one, uh, how the Bible uh, gives us an example of theology at work. Think about, think about the upper room. Think about uh, John's Gospel, chapters uh, 14, 15, 16, and then the prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17. Think of that section in John's Gospel. Four chapters. There are only 21 chapters uh, in uh, the Gospel of John. So you've got, uh, you've got like 20% here of the entire Gospel devoted to an evening. You're writing a life of Jesus, and 20% of this life is one evening. That tells you that the gospel is, isn't just a, a historical record. It's doing something much more than that. Um, and, and what is it? You know, what would Jesus want his disciples to know on the eve of his crucifixion? What would you do? If you knew you only had 24 hours to live, actually less than that. Actually, actually more, like, more like 15 or 16 hours to live. What would you do? And do you know what Jesus did? He taught about the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it doesn't read, and if you go to the next page, at the top of the next page, I've, I've uh, quoted from the Westminster Confession, in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, you just want to cut that out and put it on a, on a, on a little sticky note on the fridge. Because that, that is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world, the doctrine of the Trinity. It is absolutely essential. If you take out the doctrine of the Trinity, you don't have, you don't have Christianity. The gospel as we know it can only function if God is triune. Now, 
the course on Trinity will be the beginning of next spring. Right after Christmas, let your hair down, had fun, have a little bit of break. When we come back in uh, probably around February, mid-January, February, whenever we come back, the first, I think it's the first topic when we come back, the doctrine of the Trinity. And will we have some fun? But look at how Jesus uh, talks about it in the upper room. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. All that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Whoever hates me, hates my Father also. I am going to him who sent me. I do not go away. The helper will not, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about himself, Jesus, but he's talking about his Father, and he is in the Father, and the Father is in me, and he's talking about going away and sending a representative agent who will be Jesus dwelling in the hearts of his people representatively by the Holy Spirit. And you say, what? Imagine these are Jews. These disciples in the upper room are Jews, right? They're converted Jews, but they're Jews. What is the central belief of Judaism? Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema of Israel. Behold, the Lord your God is one. Again, behold, the Lord your God is one. And Jesus is saying in the upper room, there is more than one who is that one God. There's only one God, but there's more than one who is that one God. Because the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And um, I find that quite amazing. I, I, I'm always dumbfounded that the thing that Jesus wanted to teach the disciples on the eve of his crucifixion was the doctrine of the Trinity. Because he felt that that would be the most helpful thing to help his disciples live the blessed life. Can't you wait? Can't you wait to hear the doctrine of the Trinity expounded? Um, Look at the second example here. Uh, Paul is addressing the church at Philippi. A very familiar text, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind... Uh, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now there are a gazillion things in that text uh, that we will draw attention to when we come to study the person and work of Christ. 
later on in this uh, course. We'll be looking at his person and we'll be looking at his work. But look at some of the things here that he talks about. He talks about three states of Christ. Uh, A state of Christ before he became incarnate. Uh, Though he was in the form of God and didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? He's talking about Jesus before the incarnation. Then he talks about Jesus after the incarnation. And then he talks about Jesus exalted and given a name which is above every name. So three different states of Christ, before incarnation, after incarnation, and exaltation. Uh, Look at the very end uh, of uh, of the text. Uh, gives to him a name uh, that every tongue uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, The Greek word is kurios. Kurios is the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew uh, divine name for God. Right? For Jews, this this is a tantamount to blasphemy because it's attributing the divine name... Jehovah, Yahweh, that name that God gives to Moses in Exodus 3, the special name of God, the covenant name of God, is attributed here to Jesus. It's a, it's a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus. Now, what's the point of uh, Philippians 2? Well, Paul uses this word, emptied himself. Uh, a little bit of a, a conundrum here about the translation. We'll come back to that later in the course about the translation here of a Greek word, uh, kenosis, Uh, he emptied himself. But what what is Paul getting at? Jesus was God, but he denied himself. He he drew a veil over all his rights and privileges for your sake and mine. Have this mind among you. Now, why is Paul, what is Paul addressing? He's addressing two women in the church at Philippi. uh, What are their names? What are the names of the two women in Philippi that Paul is addressing who are quarreling? Iodius and Syntyche. Iodius and Syntyche. You know, poor, poor... Poor girls, you know, Paul mentions them by name. You know, forever after, until Jesus comes, they are named in Philippi, and don't they wish they'd have got on with each other. Uh, Paul, Paul, Paul wants them, he wants them to stop exercising this, this one-upmanship, which was in the church at Philippi. Paul loved this church at Philippi. But what does he use? What is, how does he address the spirit of pride and the spirit of one-upmanship? And he introduces massive theology of the incarnation of Jesus. He's using theology to produce an ethical response in the church at Philippi. Uh, Look at the third example, the author of Hebrews uh, encouraging assurance in the midst of apostasy. You know, this is is Hebrews 6, 
uh, let us leave the elementary doctrine, right, the ABC. He's, uh, he's wanting us to go beyond, right? He wants you to join the school of theology at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia. Uh, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, uh, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Uh, and then drop down about five lines. It is impossible in the case of those who once... Uh, been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Now, you're very familiar with that passage in Hebrews 6. It's a very scary passage. Um, the author of Hebrews seems to be suggesting there are those who make a profession of faith but fail to persevere, uh, that, uh, that they, they, yield, they, they, they yield to apostasy and it is impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance. Lots of questions arising in your minds a year from now. Uh, when, we're, when we're dealing with the uh, perseverance of the saints, we'll have to come back to this passage and uh, how does the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints square with this passage. But having said all of that, uh, look at uh, the top of the next page, page 8. Though we speak in this way, you know, this author of uh, Hebrews, whoever he is, um, my, my theory is that it's Paul dictating through Luke so you have a, a Lucan sort of effect in Hebrews. That's my theory. That's, that's not thus saith the Lord or anything. That's just Thomas' uh, theory. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's, uh, there's, there's Paul in it somewhere. Uh, but it's actually coming through the hand of Luke. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, having scared them witless. Uh, he, he now pulls back a little and says, you know, I'm, 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 I'm assured of better things of you. He wants to exhort them to perseverance. He gives them this dire warning. And, and then he wants to comfort them. Now, how is he going to comfort them? How is he going to give them? What is the basis of our assurance? Look at the next paragraph. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. He's referring to the covenant that God made with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He's using covenant theology, right? Another, another topic we're going to talk about. Um, he's using covenant theology to encourage um, assurance. What is the basis upon which I may be assured? Well, not, not my experience. Right? N not ultimately my promise is to persevere. Not, certainly not my efforts. It's the promise that God has made. Having begun a good work, I will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Right? The assurance is outside of ourselves. The assurance is in the fact that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It's in the immutability of the promises of God. Right? We're going to look at God's immutability uh, in a few weeks. But what is Hebrews 6 doing? It's using theology in the interests of assurance to live the blessed life. Well, I was going to look at some more passages. Uh, you can do that in your uh, leisure, leisure uh, for countering antinomianism from Romans 6 and uh, and then a very familiar passage, especially at stewardship season uh, from 2 Corinthians 8, 9, 
Uh, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are all about the offering, right? The offering that Paul was trying to raise for the poor in uh, Jerusalem, poor Christians in uh, Jerusalem from Gentile churches, largely in Asia Minor and, and especially in Corinth. Uh, and what does he use? How does he encourage How does he encourage giving? How does he encourage stewardship? By employing the doctrine of the atonement. He's using the doctrine of the atonement to encourage stewardship and liberality. Now, uh, uh, number four, uh, first and last thoughts, uh, and um, this is by no means... uh, This is by no means uh, full here, but uh, a few things that come to mind. Uh, First of all, uh, theology and worship. As as we begin this this journey, this adventure, you know, it's like reading uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, How many Lord of the Rings fans do I have in this room? Put your hands up. The rest of you are very sad. I mean, seriously, I've read Lord of the Rings every year since I was about uh, 18 years, 17, 18 years. I was in high school. I was in uh, what you'd call 11th grade when I first read it, and I think I've read it every year since then. Every long trip uh, this year, I went to South Africa and back, and that was uh, 16 hours there and 16 hours back. And um, uh, it was enough time to read Lord of the Rings again. Um, but every time I read that opening, uh, opening couple of pages, you're, you're off on an adventure. It's a journey. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. Um, we're, we're on an adventure, right? We're going on a, on a journey that will take us uh, near the gates of Mordor and beyond. Uh, because, yes, we, we actually do have to talk about the doctrine of hell uh, before the end of this course. Um, but uh, what is the goal here? What is the goal? And the goal is worship. The worship of our God. Uh, Another little quotation here from uh, Jim Packer. Theologies which cannot be sung or prayed for that matter are certainly wrong at a deep level and such theologies leave me in both senses cold, cold hearted and uninterested. Um, I'm, I'm not interested in a theology that I can't sing. If I can't sing it, um, if I can't pray it, if it doesn't drive me to my knees to worship God, I'm not interested in it. And that's why I'm not really interested in philosophical theology, uh, although it's a, a necessary branch. I just want the conclusion. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really interested in it uh, at, a, at any deep level. Um, theology and, and worship. So we want, the reason why we come to this course and the reason why we make this uh, commitment uh, to, to spend two years on a pilgrimage through the A to Z of theology is because I, I want to be able to worship God better than I do. I want him to have all of my mind and I want him to have all of my affections and I want him to have all of my life. Take my life, take my thoughts, take my heart, take my affections. Um, 
Second thing, theology and the limitations of reason. I love this uh, quotation from William Ames. William Ames was a contemporary of Perkins. Perkins was the guy who defined theology as living blessedly forever, science living blessedly forever. William Ames said, faith is the resting of the heart on God. Faith is the resting of the heart uh, on God. Now, we, we, we necessarily, you know, God made us to be explorers. That's why I check, I'm sorry, I check every day the NASA site. I have it on my iPhone. I check for the latest picture from um, Curiosity. I'm just completely bowled over. Uh, I'm bowled over by the clarity of the pictures, uh, just the, the mountain, Mount Sharp, and uh, the whole thing. I'm, I'm there. I'm right there. Uh, God made that. And God made that for us as the first human beings to see it with that clarity. Isn't that breathtaking? I mean, that, that takes my breath away. Um, we are going to look at things in, uh, in this course. We're going to ask questions, and, and sometimes we're going to come right to the very edge. And perhaps, perhaps for some of you, go over the edge and say, do you really think we should ask that question? Because at a certain point, Deuteronomy 29, 29 kicks in, doesn't it? The secret things belong unto the Lord. And those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children. We want to examine the things that are revealed. But sometimes, you know, we ask questions about the relationship between, between uh, good and evil. How does a good God permit evil in the world? Why didn't he stop it? And at a certain point, you know, and I've got, a, I've got several uh, sentences here from uh, Job uh, 38 and 40, because it's the lesson that Job had to learn. At a certain point, you have to throw up your hands and say, I don't understand this. I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, students will ask me in seminary questions, and sometimes I just have to say, I have no idea. I, I don't know. And, and sometimes, sometimes it's because of my lack of understanding, but sometimes it's because I don't think God has revealed the answer to that question. The secret things belong unto him. And at some point you have to stop. It's not important that you understand. What's important is that he understands. He knows what he's doing. So there are limits to reason. Uh, then... Uh, a couple of other things here, theology and prayer, and there's a beautiful uh, little quotation there from uh, Warfield. And finally, theology and scripture. Um, this uh, wonderful quote from Augustine, how amazing is the profundity of your words. To look into the depths makes me shudder, but it is the shudder of awe, the trembling of love. Uh, what is the point of the study of theology to make us fall in love with Scripture, with the Bible. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation day and night. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you as we begin now this, uh, this journey, this pilgrimage as we begin to examine the things that you have revealed and disclosed, we pray for minds 
that are alert and, and, and properly uh, explorative, but also submissive to what you have revealed and quiet and still uh, in those areas uh, that are a secret to us. We ask for our affections to be warmed and drawn after our Savior, Jesus Christ, and uh, pray uh, tonight that as we begin this journey, you would mold us and shape us more and more like Jesus, that we might be Christ-like, equipped, mature in our thinking, in our thought, in our understanding of the things that you have revealed, so that we may live, yes, the blessed life, the glorious life, the life uh, filled with joy and contentment and peace, uh, knowing the gospel that saves and knowing uh, our great God uh, whose word cannot be broken. Uh, So bless us, uh, each one we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.